Welcome to the Positively Alive podcast. I am so glad you made it, and I can't wait to introduce you to our distinguished panel of speakers. This is a space where you will be able to learn more about HIV and AIDS, about the latest medical developments and the tremendous progress that has been made over the last couple of years. We will also elaborate on what it means to live with HIV today and how it is possible to live not only a healthy, but also a happy life. I have carefully selected our interviewees. Over the course of the next weeks and months, you will hear the voices, insights and opinions of policymakers, activists, influencers and some of the world's top medical professionals on the topic of HIV and stigma. There will also be the stories of HIV-positive people and their personal experiences on what living with HIV actually means to them. The main purpose of this podcast is to inform, educate and empower, to get the topic out of the taboo zone, to normalize HIV and to stimulate an open conversation. It is also intended to counter ignorance, prejudice, stigma and discrimination that is all too often affecting the most vulnerable people in our societies. This podcast is also a part of a wider online communication campaign about HIV and stigma. If you want to know more, please join our Facebook group at Positively Alive or visit our website at www.positivelyalive.org. Thank you so much for being here and for tuning in. I really hope you will find our content useful and purposeful. Looking forward to see you inside. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Positively Alive podcast episode. Thank you so much for joining us again. Our guest today is no one less than Dr. Linos van der Kerkhove. He is principal investigator at the HIV Cure Research Center in Ghent, Belgium, which he founded in 2009. Professor van der Kerkhove graduated from the medical school in KU Leuven in 1998 and obtained his PhD in 2006 from the Rega Institute, also in Leuven. In 2001, he worked for one year at the Pretoria Academic Hospital in South Africa in the service of internal medicine. Having seen people come to the clinic then die within 48 hours from an AIDS-related illness, on his return to Belgium, he opted to work for a few days a week in an HIV virology laboratory. In 2009, he started his own laboratory, the HIV Cure Research Center in Ghent, and a year later, he spent five months in San Francisco to familiarize himself with research on a cure. He combined his infectious disease specialist education program with a PhD in Professor de Beyser's laboratory for molecular virology. With this combination, he bridges the gap between clinical infectious diseases at the AIDS clinic and basic molecular virology research. In 2010, he worked as an invited researcher at the Gladstone Institute in Eric Verdun and Warner Lab. Since then, he has been working as an assistant professor in internal medicine at the University of Ghent in Belgium. Today, his laboratory is a team leader for HIV reservoir research. His work has gained recognition, recently featured on UNH, earning plaudits for the detailed work that has advanced our understanding of reservoirs where HIV hides while treatment suppresses the virus in the blood. Dr. van der Kerkhove continues to explore new treatments for AIDS and a vaccine to prevent HIV infection. Good afternoon, Linos. Thank you for joining us on the podcast and welcome. Welcome. You have been the head of the HIV Cure Research Center of the University of Ghent since 10 years now. Your mission has always been to unravel the mystery of HIV. Now, for our audience, could you please elaborate a little bit on why the HIV Cure and Research Center was established and what exactly you do at the Research Center? 
So initially, when most people in the 80s died of HIV, the biggest need was to find a treatment to make sure that life expectancy and quality of life could be improved. And in 1996, this was basically accomplished by identifying combined antiviral therapy, which is a treatment, the HIV treatment, which people still take today to suppress the virus, which has an enormous impact on quality of life. But subsequently, we tried to move further. What is the next challenge? And the next challenge is obviously, I mean, there were a few challenges for which finding a vaccine, having as much as possible people on treatment, and finding a cure were among the most important ones. So we, you said, can people together try to focus on this last question and to establish a center that really focuses on cure starting and in collaboration with patients. And how would you say has your work changed over the years? Oh, enormously. So basically, in the beginning, we tried to, to set up assess, look which samples, which patients could be involved. And it was always, let's say, we did an additional blood, flow, blood draw, 20 ml of blood, and we tried to develop assays. But along the path of further trying to de- diving deeper into it, we really understood that we should have other possibilities and other ways to look at it. So we, we, t- we took one step back and we asked patients, how could we do that? And then we kind of uh, designed studies where we really look in depth in lymph nodes, in gut. So it has been in the hospital, a multidisciplinary approach with other host- doctors, but also outside. We work together with international experts in the US, Australia. I've had a phone call this morning from the Netherlands, people from Denmark. So we have a really international network for patients, uh, for sampling sharing and where we try to really make a difference to go to the next step to find mm. the cure. So international collaboration is very important to actually come to a solution for, for the epidemic. Yeah, for us, there's no doubt. I mean, that we it's definitely not that we're going to solve this enormous problem on our own here in Ghent or in Belgium. There is a huge knowledge out there that should be shared. We ha- have basically theses and telephone conferences and Skype and Zoom meetings on a daily basis to look at latest results from other researchers and to see what is the next step of study design that we should look into. So it's basically global collaboration to uh, combat a global problem. Definitely, it is like that. Now, uh, you mentioned something interesting. You, You talked about patients. Now, patients are a very important part of the research trajectory. But at what point do you involve patients in those projects? Well, also that has been changed over the, the, the last years enormously. In the beginning, when, let's, in the 2010, 11 years, we asked patients, you know, we say we have a, an interesting study. Are you willing to collaborate uh, and to step into that and to give blood sample or, so, or, or something like that? But now we realized later on that sometimes for patients, the more we ask, the more kind of difficult it is to to participate unless you make the difficult steps very easy. Let's say you have a study where you do a two-weekly sampling. You cannot ask the patient to come to the hospital, try to find a parking slot and so on, and and, and it takes four hours. So what we decided, that that was a question from the patients, how to find a solution for that. So we decided that basically our study nurse would 
go to the house for, from that patient, do the blood draw early in the morning, and then the patient can go to his work. So he didn't lose time. So these kind of very small things are very important. So that's why patients are now upfront involved. They help to design the study, to look at feasibility, and to see really how can we move forward in, in an appropriate design that is also for us acceptable. So how, from very early on. So how easy is it to find patients for your studies? Well, basically we are known to do HIVQ research. So most of the patients that are in follow-up in our center, which is about a number of 1,500 of people, they are aware of it. And that's why we announce, if we announce a study or a, an ID into the waiting room, for example, people can already look into that, help co-designing, ask questions to the doctors. So that's basically going very fluent. We don't, that's not a barrier for us because HIV patients in general, and, and especially those that we follow, they basically are aware of it and they very, they really like to help to, to make an next step possible. And how do you uh, manage risk that is involved with doing those research programs, especially in, in, in light of, of uh, the concern of the, of the patients? I mean, that's a very good question. So what? Because uh, let's let's put that into a very really practical question. If we, for example, propose to do a lymph node excision, how do you manage the risk, which is like 0.5 percent of to have an infection there? So that's an official number, you know. So basically, there are a few things we tell the patient up front that there is a risk so that he's aware of it. The second thing is we only allow experts to do the procedure. So it's really the professor himself that takes out the lymph node. So it's a senior person that has long-term experience because this is in the context of a clinical trial. So we really want to, to protect the patient as much as possible. And then we foresee a very close follow-up the next days we would see the patient asking him to come back to the hospital just to look whether or not there is a problem or not. And if there is a problem, we try to react very fast on that. Okay. Now, very recently, actually two weeks ago, your center, the HIV Cure and Research Center, was all over the news with a scoop described as a world first, basically the so-called viral reservoir, the place where the AIDS virus is hiding, was finally been discovered. Can you please elaborate on what exactly uh, you accomplished here at the center? So people have been looking where the virus is hiding over the last 10 years. Mainly what they did was they tried to find virus in a certain organ and in a certain cell type. And they quantified that, like there is a lot or there is only very few cells. So and then there was a statement made that a certain type of cells in the blood had a high number of virus present, so me being most probably the uh, origin of viral rebounds, just on a quantification. But we also know, and that's a difficult concept, but we also know that from all the viruses that are present, only about 2 to 3% are really intact viruses. Most of the viruses are actually crippled in our cells. So 98% of the viruses don't mean anything. So only the non-crippled ones are basically the important ones. And the, as the virus evolves a lot, in the absence of antiviral therapy, so before you start treatment, most of these compartments of the, or organs in the body are infected with a slightly different virus because the virus is evolving. So what you can say that all these organs have a different kind of barcodes. 
Now, to really identify the origin of viral rebound, you have to identify these barcodes, stop treatments, identify the barcode of the virus that pops up, and try to link those to each other. That in-depth study was never done for several reasons. Coordination, practices, finding patients, doing general anesthesia, and then do the downstream analysis to make sure that all the cells are handled adequately to have the right information on the right place. So it took us like about four to five years to really, from ID, to finalize it and to also introduce the treatment interruption. But we did that in 2016, 17, did all the analysis and finally published a, a paper where we described that viral rebound can basically come from every organ that has immune cells in it. And that in contrast, that was what was identified before, that cells that are already active are more prone to be uh, involved in viral rebound and as such a more important reservoir. You said that the, the virus kind of mutates across different organs. You have to identify it as a barcode then. But is the viral reservoir different from person to person as well? Oh, definitely it is. What you basically see is that uh, this origin of rebound mm -hmm. can be, in some patients, be predominantly fueled by the gut, for example. And in other patients, it comes all from the lymph nodes. And in, other, in another patient, it is very heterogeneous and it comes from blood, lymph node and gut. So it's a very, it's a random process. It's, it's a very smart virus. It's a very smart virus. It can react, it can pop up from everywhere. It's amazing, yeah. Now, you, you have also mentioned that if someone is on treatment and suddenly stops that treatment, the virus will have a rebound that is faster than compared to before. At what exact rate does it, does it rebound? And does that also mean that the virus has become stronger? Most of the virus rebounds between, let's say, a, a span between day 14 and day 36, all of the patients rebounded. And we had some blips, some virus that already was in the blood before day 14. So definitely what you see there is that this virus pops up from cells that are already kind of activated and dividing. And that is also a new concept. So the cells are not really latent, don't sleep as was assumed before, but they, it, the virus comes back from already activated cells. And in the cons in the question, your question about is it become stronger? Well, the virus definitely over the years, there's one study that suggests that, but that study looks really back 80s, 90s, 2000, 2010. And that study is, is another study that, that is not our study, but suggests that the virus indeed is more fit now than it was. Uh, there, are, there are some data that shows increase in fitness, although that effect is very small. How many patients participated in that, in that specific study? We had 12 patients in our study from which 11 underwent a treatment interruption. 11 went into treatment interruption. Yeah. And that treatment interruption, uh, as you said, after 14 days, yeah. up until 31 days, yeah. the viral load in the body, so the virus came, came yeah. back in all yeah. those patients. Yeah. And how was the reaction of those patients? Because I can imagine, I've never participated in a study like this, but it must quite be nerve-wracking, no, for some people. Yeah, it was actually, uh, that was one of our major findings also, was that uh, although we assumed that doing all the procedures like the colonoscopy, the lymph node, the, lumbar, the puncture in the, in the lumbar puncture, that this would give a lot of stress. 
as this was done under general anesthesia, this was not a stressing factor. The stressing factor is the stop of treatment and wait till the virus comes back. Because, because nobody really knows when it's going to happen. You know, no, you don't know. And you, you basically, you called in, or we called them. Yeah, you're still in day, day 12, you're still undetectable. Day 14, you're still undetectable. Then day 16, you're still undetectable. Day 18. So then people start to get nervous. They just wanted to rebound and it, then, just, then we could restart therapy. And then basically that gives kind of a confidence, the treatment Because then you become undetectable and then you don't have to worry anymore because it's like a comfort zone that people have. Yeah. Now, I would say that I'm, I'm not sure if there are any patients that were thinking maybe the virus won't come back. So there's one patient that goes over the 30 days. And if this patient then asks, you know, is how many are, did they have the same experience? And they have to say, you are the only one. Then it becomes a kind of, maybe an expectation, maybe the virus is not going to come back. And it was also like that, that we had to look very carefully that uh, everyone restarted according to all mm. rules and so on. You have also mentioned that if you want to come to a cure, then the therapy must be developed that focuses on all those places, all the, the places where the, the, the virus can come from or rebound, or different, different therapies must be combined. Now, does that mean that As an HIV patient, we are going to have to take more than one pill because I take one pill a day. Are we going to have to take more pills per day? Or what does that mean in terms of cost as well? I think, you know, what is important there is normally this should be a one-time intervention, right? Mm -hmm. So basically it can be that is a comb combination therapy, could be an infusion or long-term like that something is taken away from the blood and given given back or kind it can be a vaccination so the, it's definitely not clear how that would look look like and it's definitely not the aim as having like going back to this huge pill burden for months but it can be that it's a, i mean i assume it will be a kind of a, a combination between probably vaccination in antibody infusion tablet intake and that should be for a short period in order to have this more functional cure where you don't have to take tablets anymore afterwards, so a short period. Will it be more expensive? Well, probably it will definitely, be, well, it will be more expensive than your tablets today, but it should be a one-time treatment, right? Okay. And then obviously cost is uh, put into a completely different perspective. Mm. Now, with your findings, a lot of people have hopes again that AIDS will be eradicated, HIV will, will be, you know, um, of the books, so to speak. The media also jumps on your findings, um, giving, you know, fueling that hope of people. Yeah. How hopeful are you really that we are close to a cure for HIV? I'm definitely hopeful in that way that um, a cure will, finally identifying a cure will be a combined effort between well-designed clinical trials, but that knowledge for that trials will not only come from the HIV field. There's a lot of biomolecular research ongoing for other diseases that gives us insight on how to manipulate cells, how to select cells to produce antibodies, and how, to, how antibodies can, for example, be designed that are much better than before, how vac new vaccine strategies. So there, there's also a lot of big data that is coming together in supercomputers, how to analyze how the virus is looking like and will evolve. So it's all that kind of data together that allows us to make steps towards a cure.
So that's, that is why I'm, I'm optimistic, because it's not only us here in Ghent, it's an international collaboration, mm-hmm. but it has also another layer of complexity, that is people that do other types of research in other fields that can fuel in their knowledge into the HIVQ research platforms that then use that information to help designing new strategies. And that's why I'm hopeful that within the next 10 to 15 years, clinical trials will be designed that really focus on, on that cure and try to establish periods of time where patients should be off treatment and where the virus is not rebounding. I'm, I'm hopeful that this will happen in the next 10 to 15 years. That's it. That's a great message. But now that the, the HIV reservoir has finally been, been discovered, what should be the immediate priorities for the HIV cure and research center of the University of Ghent in terms of next projects, research projects? Obviously, been, uh, we've been working on that over the last one to one and a half years to, to have an, a targeted uh, therapy to these viruses because the analysis of the reservoir does not only learn us where it comes from, but it also learns what these barcodes are So that I spoke about. And having these barcodes gives us additional information on how to design strategies to really target these barcodes. And that's why we are focused on this more immune therapeutic strategies to el- eliminate those viruses with those, fi- with those specific barcodes that mm. are popping up. Now, research costs money. What are the specific needs of the HIV cure and research center here of the University of Ghent? Well, in terms of money, if you look to, for example, try to make the step from uh, the identification of the viral reservoir to a clinical trial that aims to address that, uh, like, like a phase one we call that phase one, which is very early safety study, which some aspects of efficacy, you would look very early, very fast to a kind of a budget of between one and two million euros. That is where we are actually looking at for the moment to have a, and to really make that next step towards try to establish such a study within, with the Belgian government approval we need. We need approval from some organizations that they approve that we can do that study And then we have to find um, donors or organizations that support us to, to make that next step. Now, and there's something else that I that I'd like to put into context. It's one of the most significant medical breakthroughs of the last history uh, in, in, in medicine is USU, undetectable is untransmittable, meaning that a person who is living with HIV on treatment who is taking his medicine every day becomes undetectable. So the virus cannot be measured anymore so he cannot transmit that virus to another person. Now, what is the significance of USU within the context of, uh, of your studies? Basically, the message that we give there is that undetectable people indeed cannot transmit the virus. So as soon as you go to cure studies and interventions, you have two issues. Some of these interventions try to reactivate the virus, so the patient becomes detectable, so the undetectability is gone. And some of these studies also do treatment interruptions like ours. So there you really have to make sure that the patient completely understands that he might become infectious again. So we have some tools to handle that. That is, for example, we can provide a partner with PrEP, with pre-exposure prophylaxis. But in, in general, we advise the patient to use condoms until he's undetectable again. So that's a very important thing. So the counseling is clearly one of the priorities in all these studies. Transparent communication. To make sure that these people do not infect someone else during the trial. 
Yeah, and I mean, I, I suppose that, that this is something that you look at very carefully. Absolutely. And we counsel that through the whole trajectory. Did you have any unprotected sex? And I mean, as we discussed before, you should always use a condom. Did that always happen? Do you have a fixed partner which would be interested in PrEP and so on? So this is uh, all very important. Yeah. Mm. When you talk about the future of research in general, uh, what is your opinion of, about gene editing as a promising cure for HIV? Gene editing has evolved enormously over the last five years, I would say, with new, new, very potent tools that became, that came to us. That's kind of this meta layer I talked about from other input from other researchers. I'm really convinced that this will be one of the issues that will move forward over the next five to 10 years into clinical trials with probably promising results. The only problem with gene therapy is so far we don't have a solution to make it broadly available on an affordable price and also not in regions which are in huge need. But also that might change. We might have kind of universal edited cells that you can use from a donor bank that can suppress the virus or that can more easily applicate it. And that is something we, we don't have for the moment. So I believe in gene therapy. But in order to have it really a powerful tool to treat everyone, we will need to make some additional steps to have universal access to that. And with all the amazing developments that have been happening over the last couple of years within the HIV and AIDS field, what would you say to young researchers who start their career in this, in this specific area? There is definitely still a huge need to motivate people to move forward. There's also a huge need to involve patients in it from very early. So a good researcher needs to think about a few things. That is, he has to be excellent in, excellent in science. Also, communication is very important because you want to interact, make sure you have the right samples, make sure you have access to all of this. And so that's a, a, a second point. A third point is Try to be positive, you know, have a positive attitude. You, as a researcher, we all had that experience as doing a PhD or being a young researcher that thing, you know, you don't make huge steps. You make small steps moving forward. You also have to go back some steps sometimes. So try to, to keep the positive things from your research and move that forward and try to integrate it with good communication and a positive attitude and good scientific skills. And that will bring you wherever you want and help you help us finding a cure finally. Yeah. I have a last uh, question for you, um, Linos. What would you say to a person living with HIV today about the prospects of his life, uh, psychological, also in, in a medical context? The, the prospects are that if you take your tablets very well and you are in good follow-up, you're basically your life expectancy is the same as someone that is HIV negative. But there is a huge but, and that is that stigma, and uh, probably as one of the most important ones, makes it for most of the people difficult, and it gives loneliness, and uh, it makes people like feeling really down because they have this feeling of guilty of being HIV positive. And I hope that we really can let that behind us, because basically... Every become HIV positive is is something that happens, you know, along the road in it's some months. It's just a virus. Yeah, it's just a virus. We are all infected with many viruses, and that's one of them. But we should not allow the virus to dominate our life in any negative way. 
Wow, that's a, that's a clear message. And I hope that we, with our campaign, we can contribute a little bit to, uh, to getting that message across to the world. Uh, Linus, thank you so much for thank joining you. us on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So yes, a big, big thank you to Dr. Linus van der Kerkhoven for coming on this podcast and for sharing with us his fascinating journey. Even though a cure for HIV may still not be immediately on the horizon, his relentless work is an inspiration to us all and a testimony that together we can make significant progress, which will one day hopefully result in the end of the HIV and AIDS epidemic. Thank you very much, Dr. Linus van der Kerkhoven. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and that you learned something. If you haven't done so already, please join our Positively Alive Facebook group, specifically set up for this global campaign. It is a place where we raise awareness about HIV and educate people to counter prejudice, taboo and stigma. Whether you are HIV positive or not, our growing community is for everyone interested in learning more about the topic and to share positive and uplifting messages. Check also the Positively Alive YouTube channel, where we upload a reduced video version of this podcast interview with the most important messages. I would also love it if you review this podcast and share your thoughts across social media. Let people know that you subscribed to the Positively Alive podcast. The more it gets shared, the more people we will reach, and that is ultimately the intention of this podcast. You can tag me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And let me know what you have learned from this. I am so looking forward to share with you our next episode. I also take this opportunity to reiterate and underline the importance of your personal financial contributions to this campaign. Never before in history have we been so close to a vaccine for HIV. Strangely enough, however, we see the national and international donor community pulling back, thinking that everything is in the pocket already. It is not yet in the pocket. We cannot afford a funding crisis right now, not when we are this close to ending the epidemic. A society without HIV where our children can be vaccinated against the virus, how cool would that be? And how much money this would save us as a society? So from a place of humility and love, please be generous with your donations. You can find the donation link in the text area of this podcast, on our Facebook page, on all our other social media channels, and on our website, www.positivelyalive.org. I count on you and so does the world. Thank you so much.